This morning I would like to address a form of prayer that has been part of the history of the church for millennia and has been gathered from the traditions and the experience of the people of God from the Old Testament. Now I'm building on what I say this morning and it's not going to be that long but I want to build on what I said in my sermon on the 29th of November where I spoke about the breath of God and prayer, um, looking at the word ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek, which all ca both carry the sense of breath or wind or spirit and the interchangeability of this and the mystery of it and the uh, sort of enigma of what the spirit breath is in terms of how we have life, how God breathes into us and when we die we breathe our last. And then the two meditations that I've done, um, one on the 2nd and one on the 16th of December on the Wednesday, the spirit and breath and life in a sense in terms of prayer and then the Yahweh prayer which we did on the 16th. Now this, this morning's talk builds on all of that. And I want to, to kick off by reading from Isaiah chapter 6, a well-known passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a lofty throne, exalted, with the train of his road filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. A dramatic, powerful image that Isaiah experiences in the same year that Uzziah died, the king Uzziah died. Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want to suggest this morning one form of prayer that has been part of the church's life, as I said, for generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's built on the foundation of um, the tradition of the Jewish people. And we'll come to that in a second. But I want to say as a starting point, that prayer isn't just an intellectual exercise. It's not just words and lists of thanksgivings and lists of requests. Prayer is our bringing of ourselves in awareness before God. And the prayer that I want to suggest today, I understand that prayer, there's a certain amount of uh, temperament and personality that isn't part of prayer. But this prayer has, as I said, stood the test of time. And um, you may feel uh, it's not for you, but I would love for you to, to, to reflect and try in this sense. Now, to the Old Testament roots for this. Taking this prayer, the Jewish people, um, and this has become embedded in their life together um, by the time of Jesus. Um, it was a regular prayer that they said, um, and the whole thing of holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of your glory. Now, there's um, another form which is called the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Now, that, that might strike us as something of an, of an odd prayer, but the Shema had become part of the fabric of Israel's prayer life uh, by the time of Jesus. It sunk deep into the consciousness of them as a people, and not simply as a formula that was repeated, you know, it, and it's quite some formula. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's not a bad prayer to repeat liturgical, liturgically a couple of times a day. But more than that, this had become for them a statement of faith which encompassed everything and set course, set uh, the, their bearings at the beginning of the day and during every minute of the day, set their bearings towards the true God whom they served and then framed all of their decision-making and referenced all that they were doing through the day. So this sense of breathing this prayer in and out all the time, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So that when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he said, um, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, what do the commandments say? What, what instinctively comes out of him is, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus says, yes. So he affirms this. And then he adds on to it. But the point is that this, by the time of Jesus' day, had become bedded into the whole fabric of their life before God as a people, as individuals. And there's the incident with uh, Rabbi Akiba, who was one of the, the, the key uh, figures in um, the time of Hadrian. Um, there was a lot of anti-Semitic legislation and he resisted that. He died horribly at the hands of his torturers. But as he was um, uh, dying, he was reciting this as part of his embodied prayer, if you like. It was instinctive. It had become so part of who he was, habitual. It was like breathing, which is what I referenced in the meditations that we looked at and the preaching on the 29th. Now, into the early part of the church's life, in the early centuries of the church, especially in the East, to some extent in the Western church, um, this has found a new form. And in Revelation 4, I want to read this as I get to this now. In Revelation 4 and 5, those two magnificent passages in the book of Revelation on worship. Um, verse 8 in chapter 4, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now there's, a, there's an echo back to the... Uh, Isaiah 6 passage that I read earlier, but this is a stronger reference perhaps to the Ezekiel chapter 1, which is worth going to read again. 
but the sense of these creatures, these angelic beings, um, uh, these enigmatic four creatures, um, they, they, they tasked with day and night repeating over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And as I said, in the early life of the church, in the East in particular, there was a thing that has become known as the Jesus Prayer. And there are variations of it, but this is perhaps the best known one, where it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's the entire prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's repeated in the same way, over and over and over again, like the Shema, as it's said, over and over until it becomes part of almost the act of breathing, breathing in and embedding it in a sense of us, the love of God and the presence of God deep within our very consciousness and being. And that sense of breathing, of spirit, of breathing out and in and in and out. Um, and it's designed, in a sense, to breathe in. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, as you inhale, have mercy on me, a sinner, as you exhale. And this prayer, as it starts, sometimes it's difficult when one starts a new habit in, in, in that sense. One has to repeat it and keep at it, um, they say, 40 days, I say 90 days, because after uh, 90 days, there's a sense of a rhythm that begins to develop. But it becomes part of your heart and mind and, and, and seeks, seeps into one's consciousness and becomes a vehicle for the focus of everything that we do. Now, uh, N.T. Wright looks at this in one of the books uh, where he deals with the whole thing of prayer and worship and suggests to us that um, for um, it to be um, um, significant for us, this is a focus on Jesus, Son of the living God. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. He, he goes on to suggest, and we'll look at it in a sense, that it should be more rounded and more Trinitarian. But the idea is, both in terms of Jewish tradition and in terms of our church history and tradition, this has been a vehicle for um, embedding a sense of focus on who God is and our prayer with Him and of bedding into us a sense of His presence. This constant repeating, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That's what the angels are saying constantly. Now, a lot of people uh, in the uh, evangelical traditions have had a, a resistance to something that is repetitive because of what Jesus said in Matthew 13 about vain repetitions. But it's only vain if it becomes a formula. And so I have no hesitation that this sense of repeating to God in a real way um, who he is and what he is in terms of worship and prayer, there's nothing in vanity in terms of us doing that together with the angels. So, that just as an aside. So, what I say is that this builds on two uh, uh, particular 
features that are part of who we are. And there is the sense of the rhythm of breathing that I've mentioned. And when we looked at the whole question of spirit and pneuma, in Genesis 2 verse 7, it says that um, God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him and he became a living being. And all the way through the scriptures, there's this sense of breath and life and spirit that are, are intertwined. And as we pray this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As we breathe in and breathe out, there's a rhythm that our body becomes part of our prayer. Our breath, spirit becomes part of our prayer. And um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there's an aspect of this that is not part of one's um, conscious mind. There is a strange truth that, that is difficult perhaps to grasp and perhaps even more difficult to try to communicate. That when we think of breathing, we often think of it as a purely natural thing and we don't even think about it most of the time. A scientific thing of you having to take in certain things that you stay alive. But Genesis and the rest of the scriptures regard breathing and breath and spirit as part of the gift that God gives to us. It's part of his uh, making us alive and helping us to be sustained. It sets up the rhythm of quietly energizing us day by day, enlivening us to be who we are. And so what um, N.T. Wright suggests, and I like the suggestion, is that we, we make this a Trinitarian formula. We have a sense, three rhythms which we use. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And you breathe in on that. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we breathe out, set up your kingdom in our midst. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. And then in the middle, he suggests you put the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so we inhale on the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Have mercy on me, a sinner, as you exhale. And then as a third part of the, the Trinity, he says, Holy Spirit, breath of the living God. And we affirm this whole thing of breath. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God. Renew me and all the world. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, as you breathe in. Renew me and all of the world as you breathe out. And so what he's suggesting, and I, I like the idea, is that we inhale in a rhythm of threes and exhale in a rhythm of threes, that we inhale the truth and life of God himself, the miracle of life into us, and we exhale what we want either to release or to see set free into the life around us in our own lives. And so we invoke God and we, we invite God in that sense. And so we cap capture some of this rhythm of breathing in our prayer itself. And there is a wholeness in that. And breath comes as it does to us naturally. So then prayer starts to come to us as part of our breathing as naturally as it does before. The second thing, just quickly to, to, to mention, is this. That... Very often our minds are uh, semi-conscious. 
There are all kinds of stimulations and things that are going on it, and our minds get um, cluttered, and especially in our day and age when there's so much TV and so much media and, and just music, there's, there's a constant barrage of noise. And I'm advocating for us to have times of silence, times of aloneness, times of stillness, because unless we do, we cannot actually experience the presence of God in the way that we ought to and need to. But with this prayer, when we breathe in and out, and we start by consciously being aware of simply just breathing in and out in our bodies and relaxing them, that something happens in our minds. Our minds are scattered and are all over the place and are filled with all kinds of things. So just as a stupid thing, if I say to you, uh, stop thinking about a pink elephant, the first thing that's in your mind now is a pink elephant. And our minds are cluttered with all kinds of things. Part of this rhythmic prayer, this breathing prayer, is that it brings our minds into a place of settledness and consciousness before God. Now, just a quick aside, the whole practice of mindfulness is really a secularized form of meditation. It's where all the religious and spiritual aspects are stripped out and people begin to be present to their bodies, to their circumstances, to their feelings, to all that sort of stuff. And there's great merit in that. There's great benefit in mindfulness. But Christian meditation, our meditation, our prayer, is so much deeper and more profound and meaningful than, than simple mindfulness. But it takes us to a place where in the breathing in and out, our minds begin to rest and to settle and to become quiet and open to hear what God is saying. And part of the cleansing of that, Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says, whatever things are good and pure and just and right, um, you know that passage towards the end of his letter to the Philippian church. He said, whatever things are like that, think on those things because it's about our minds being renewed and, and cleansed. And part of the Jesus prayer or the Trinitarian trilogy of prayer, as uh, N.T. Wright suggests, is a cleansing of our minds and our spirits in that sense. And so let me just suggest, this is not something, as I said earlier, that happens overnight. The prayer, the rhythmic prayer of breathing in and breathing out like the Shema for the Jewish people or the Jesus prayer of the Eastern Orthodox Church or this trilogy of prayers that N.T. Wright suggests is a, a discipline that takes time but is hugely beneficial in us coming to a state of, of uh, awareness and um, and, and presenting ourselves before God and hearing what the Spirit is saying to us as individuals. Now, I want to suggest that I read to you the three prayers and then um, have a moment of silence and then I will just finish by reading the three prayers again as a, as a, as a benediction doxology. The three prayers that N.T. Wright suggests are these, that we learn as a rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. So as we inhale, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and we exhale, set up your kingdom in our midst. As we inhale, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, and as we breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. As we inhale, Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. Amen.